Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. On the program this time, as we come up against the deadline for the Defense Department to finally declare that it's ready for a financial audit, we've just gotten our first signs of commitment from the new administration that they're all in, in terms of meeting the mandate to begin a full-scope financial audit in 2018. Congressional testimony from David Norquist, DOD's newly confirmed comptroller, saying it's time to start an audit, not just because it's the law, but because the audit process itself will help improve the department's financial condition. Later in the program, we'll hear what DOD's financial management workforce thinks about where things stand based on nine years of comprehensive survey data. But we begin this week's show with Rear Admiral David Hahn, our guest for the first half of the program. He became the Chief of Naval Research back in November. We invited him on the air to talk about a couple of his first initiatives. One is to develop a new framework for how the Navy administers scientific research and technology development with the overarching goal of speeding up the ultimate delivery of new capabilities. The other is what the Office of Naval Research is calling the Concept Challenge, inviting anyone and everyone to submit one-page summaries of leap-ahead ideas that could help the Navy Navy meet its missions. And Admiral Hahn, let's begin with the concept challenge. What sorts of ideas are you looking for? I mean, you, you say you're looking for innovative ideas. What's your definition of an innovative idea in the, in the context of the challenge? Jared, that's a great question. Um, as we are looking at the future, um, it's pretty clear to me as the chief of naval research that, uh, that our fundamental role to plan, foster, and encourage scientific research uh, to ensure that our U.S. Navy and Marine Corps is always not just competitive, but uh, we have superiority in the maritime domain. Um, There is no question that uh, technology plays a huge role in that. Uh, So the future is certainly, at least from my view angle, a lot more complex than the present. And the number of actors who are on the stage and what they can bring to bear using technology that you can find every day all around you uh, makes it even more challenging as we go into the future. So, so the concept that, that your U.S. Navy is the first to market, if you will, for advanced technologies that can add value in the in the maritime warfighting domain is going to be more and more important. So what we're trying to do with the Chief of Naval Research Concept Challenges is tap into that vein of thinking, innovation, um, and maybe from sources that aren't typically associated with my environment, the U.S. Navy or the Department of Defense. So by broadly going out and asking for who's got something that could help us, um, and maybe it's a combinatory effect of technology that, technologies that we have not thought of in, in the way that somebody else might think of it. Um, it's great to bring that stuff to bear and then have our folks who do this every single day take a look at some of those things to determine feasibility, to determine if it fits into a, an operating concept that we've got or we're thinking about. Um, to open our eyes to a new operating concept, one that might be enabled by a set of technologies. So really, it's the start of a conversation, and uh, and innovation can come in many forms. And so uh, my crystal ball is not good enough to tell you, here's exactly the technology that we think we need. Here's exactly the operating concept that's going to work 20, 30, 40 years from now. 
but I think uh, the more people we have in this conversation and the more thinking we can do about it, I think we'll get the right team together over time uh, to keep our thoughts refreshed and to keep our ideas moving. Yeah, say a little bit more about the the reasoning behind turning to the broader public for ideas in this way. I mean, you've got a ton of smart people at ONR. I'm sure you've got plenty to work on. Um, I'm, I'm guessing you already have more ideas than you have budget to execute. Um, to talk about the reasoning for, for, for going big like this. Well, I think that uh, anytime you can bring more uh, more human beings into the into the mix, you're going to get a better answer. Uh, and so there, there are certainly, although, again, we do this every day, and the folks who surround me here at the Office of Naval Research, at the Naval Research Lab, and across our broad industry, academic, and, and government employee uh, uh, workforce, uh, they are the best that, that uh, you can find. But anybody's thinking can get stale. So by bringing this broader approach to bear, I think we can help maybe tune um, our sense to what's possible a little bit differently. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, all of us is certainly much better than any one of us. So by getting broader, I think we have a better chance of recognizing uh, where things might be going um, quicker. And again, this is about being first to market. Uh, so... So there are certainly those who may claim that uh, that some parts of the government acquisition system don't move at the speed of technology, and uh, I want to try to help uh, turn the head of the ship so that we can start moving at speed and absorbing technologies at the rate that these technologies get created. So that means we have to be aware. Uh, we have to understand how we can bring these to bear inside of our own systems uh, and into our training environment because at the end of the day, Human beings have to operate the equipment inside of our Navy and Marine Corps, and by doing uh, by doing this sort of broad sweep, we can make sure a we're thinking right and b take advantage of of more people working on this problem. Um, talk a bit about how well developed these concepts need to be before you can you know take them and incorporate them into ONR's research portfolio. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you don't want things that violate the laws of physics, but but at the same time, do they need to be, you know, ready to take off the shelf and become an acquisition program tomorrow? Uh, I, I think um, we are open to all comers. Again, I, I agree with you that you cannot uh, violate the laws of physics, but you can certainly challenge them. And, uh, and all the way to something that's uh, commercial off the shelf, or, or like I indicated before, some combinatory effect that you could pull with something that's off the shelf off the shelf, uh, but combined in a way with either existing gear or maybe two or three things that are off the shelf that that make it ready for uh, for use inside of our Navy and Marine Corps. And you can see you see this stuff all the time out there. Go to go to any commercial trade show, uh, especially in the IT sector, and uh, and go take a look at what innovative things people are coming up with. Uh, the fact that that you can do so much, you know, with your with your cell phone today is, I think, indicative of how fast things can move when when people are motivated to create product, and that's the that's the vein that we want to tap into is that creativity and that motivation to make a difference and bring it to bear inside of our inside of our Navy and Marine Corps technology.
technology challenge. Mm. And Admiral, once you gather all of these concepts, do you already kind of have a plan in place to rack and stack them in terms of priority, or or, or do you have a collection of technology portfolios that are already kind of organized that, that, that you're already planning to emphasize? We do have a, a, a collection uh, of portfolios, and those are those are matched in uh, in disciplines, if you will, as well as as well as speeds to get these things to the fleet and to the force. And so, by having the folks again who manage those portfolios uh, that are that are way smarter than me about uh, about whether or not this will in fact violate the laws of physics or some other natural law, uh, evaluate these things. We're lining up the right people who who can provide a a window into one of the portfolios that we've got, and if we can find a match, then uh, then you know we can move at speed. And and I see my role in this is as opening the door, opening all the windows, uh, take the roof off the place if I have to, to get as many people working on this problem as possible for the Navy and Marine Corps. Are there discrete technology problems in particular that you're trying to solve, or are you intentionally leaving this completely broad so that you get you know a very wide swath of ideas and let people identify problems and problems uh, on their own, and then come forward with solutions for them? Again, a great question. Um, I am intentionally leaving it broad because I do not want to foreclose any opportunity. And and again, uh, I'll say this a hundred times if I if I uh, if I'm allowed to. My crystal ball is not good enough to declare that this is the only thing or the collection of things that are of interest to us as we try to bring advanced technology to bear for the Navy and Marine Corps. Um, so I, I am I'm open to just about anything. And when you look at the at the lines of research that we have going here at uh, inside the Naval Research Enterprise, uh, you will see lots of things that uh, would make you scratch your head and say, what, now what possibly could that be used for to add value uh, to the U.S. Navy or Marine Corps uh, in a war fight? And, and I guarantee you that all of it does, or it creates an opportunity where blended with another technology, uh, we can get great effect for our sailors and Marines. So so I want to be as broad as possible in this in this quest. Rear Admiral David Hahn is the Chief of Naval Research. We'll come back and talk a bit more about the Concept Challenge and ONR's new framework for administering scientific research after a short break. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbiu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Rear Admiral David Hahn is with us for this part of the show. He's the Chief of Naval Research, a call to the public for innovative ideas and leap-ahead technologies. The Office of Naval Research plans to cull through all of those submissions and present the finalists at the Naval Future Force S&T Expo starting on July 20th. I understand the backdrop to a lot of this is a new framework that you're working on or maybe have already developed for uh, how you administer scientific research. Can you say a little bit more about that framework and what it entails? Yeah, I, I sure can. Um, as we consider the Office of Naval Research, which has been around since 1946 um, and has been at this problem for for over seven decades now, uh, there is this blended amalgamation of academia, meaning our, our institutes of higher learning, uh, the government 
laboratory and the warfare centers where we have our government employees, again, well-versed in the, the challenges our fleet and force uh, uh, are having today and very knowledgeable about the science behind it, and our industry partners, that the blend of those three forces together has been part of our secret sauce, if you will, in finding solutions and bringing them to bear as quickly as possible. Um, that works well, but we've got to speed it up. So as we consider a framework for doing not just research, but then applying that research and getting that applied research into a demonstration form so that folks can kick the tires, get it, get using it in the environment that it's intended to be used in, and then getting that pulled all the way through into a into what we call a program of record, um, which is that set of organizations and those vehicles by which we, we get technologies at scale onto ships, submarines, airplanes, or in the hands of a sailor or marine, uh, we've got we've to move that whole activity set forward as fast as technology allows, not as fast as our bureaucracy allows. So over, over that period of 70 years, we've done a very good job of staying ahead of the adversary. Um, but as you can just sense in the world around you, uh, technology is moving very, very fast. I would, I would challenge you to find anybody who's walking around the same, again, I'll go back to the cell phone, to the same cell phone that they were using three or four or five years ago. You're probably not going to find that person. And if you did, you'd call them old, old school for using that flip phone. Um, so technology is moving very fast, and the adversaries pick up on that. And the adversaries or potential adversaries could be, could be nation states. Uh, they could be small groups, and you can see these threat vectors coming from lots of different, uh, lots of different areas when you look around the world. Um, and your U.S. Navy and Marine Corps have to be ready for all of them. And so they are taking advantage of technology. We have to be able to do that, too. And we have to, again, do that at the speed that technology is created. Otherwise, we'll miss the opportunity. And frankly, the world is depending on this U.S. Navy to ensure the security of the global commons. When you look at where trade happens, uh, the movement of goods, services, and people, uh, most of it happens at sea. In fact, if you take a look at the globe, there's more there's more blue stuff than brown stuff and green stuff. Um, the the world moves on the oceans. We need to keep those oceans available for trade and for commerce. If we don't do that, then the world is not as global as we think. Uh, so we've been we've been at this uh, you know since the U.S. Navy really took that role on at the conclusion of World War II, and uh, and we continue that today. And the world depends on that. Uh, so we need to make sure that we're always one step ahead, and we need to make sure that we are um, powerful enough as a U.S. Navy that we can deter any adversary from taking the action that would stop the use of the global commons for the things that we need to use them for, trade, movement of services, and people. And so, Admiral, I think one of the bottom line messages I just heard from you is we need to make the entire innovation enterprise go faster. Are, are there concrete things that you already have done or, or are, are planning to do to achieve that? Uh, yes, there are. So um, faster is an interesting word. Um, I think I like the, the term with a sense of urgency um, hmm. because we could, we could march off and do things faster, um, but it may not be the right thing to do or it may not be value added. 
Um, so, so there's a there's a term that I that I like to use here, and 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 it's not my original thinking, but it's uh, to move things along this this track as I described at their theoretical limit. And so, in many cases, at least in the world that I'm in, the world of technology, that's really the speed that the technology is being developed. Sometimes by a government institution, uh, sometimes by a partner of ours, uh, and we have a number of partners across all those uh, those organizations that I spoke to earlier, or sometimes it's someone not even associated with us, but it's a technology that's being developed for purely commercial application. Um, and if we can get things organized um, inside of our inside of our acquisition world, if you will, to recognize how to impedance match our processes to wherever those technologies are being created and the speed at which they're moving, um, then our sense of urgency of moving ourselves all the way from from an idea to a fielded product that's in the hands of a sailor or a marine, I think then we're doing the best job we can. And so the things that we've done inside of our uh, our part of the ecosystem, if, if you will, or take a look at those priorities and and portfolio areas of focus that we have historically um, undertaken. Made sure that that we're clear uh, and that we're broad enough so we're not again foreclosing opportunities. We've looked at our relationship with uh, with the program offices who actually field equipment to make sure that as we move from from early stages of research into that applied world that we've got good connectivity with the with the catcher if you will as I'm pitching ideas so we pitch they catch um, the way that they catch these ideas has to be done so the product could find an on-ramp into a fielded system and then it's got to get on a merge lane and merge in smoothly without being disruptive to our own programs uh, we have to move these things and meter them in a way that the sailors and Marines who have to use them can absorb them because there's always a, a training load at the back end of these of these uh, innovative ideas. And frankly, technology can overwhelm people if you push it too fast. Uh, so we're looking at the connectivity across each of the links in that whole continuum of scientific research to development to feel the product all the way across the life cycle to make sure that we've impedance matched it as well as you can, and then it can move, again, with a sense of urgency at the theoretical limit, which is typically going to be governed by the speed that technology is advancing. Mm. Your urgency theme was also kind of a cornerstone of the white paper Admiral Richardson, the CNO, put out a month or so ago on, on the future Navy. Um, urgency, but also cost, because to kind of paraphrase his points, um, you know, it doesn't do you much good to, to invent really cool stuff if you can't buy it and implement it at scale. So I guess my question there is, to, to what extent is, do you see affordability as, as part of your innovation mission here? This is, this is really all about affordability at the end of the day, because um, this notion that technology at scale is what we need to be able to deter the adversary, and then if we have to fight... Um, if we can't do that affordably, it's not going to happen. So uh, the hypothesis is that if we move all the unnecessary drag and load out of that set of activities that has to go you know, all the way from idea to fielded product, that that by definition, 
the cost of that should go down and then more things will be affordable because you'll be doing them without any added unnecessary uh, non-value added steps along the way. Uh, just think about again the way the commercial marketplace moves and when competition is available uh, the price of goods and services goes in the in the direction where it reaches a theoretical limit that says this is the cheapest it can be produced at scale if consumers want it. And so we have to discipline ourselves to, to tune our systems to the same kind of environment, even though that, that ecosystem, that environment doesn't exist around all of our processes. Uh, so we have to be sensitive to affordability, uh, and we have, to, we have to recognize when we have opportunities to say, hey, that's good enough. Let's leave that one alone. Let's go work on this other more important thing. All right, sir. And just to kind of wrap us up back toward where we started on the concept challenge itself, uh, as I understand it, you're going to be uh, unveiling the finalists in those at the S&T Expo uh, coming up in Washington on July 20th and 21st. You want to just explain a little bit about what happens at the Expo for people who are not familiar with it? Hey, thanks for that opportunity. The, uh, the Navy Future Force Science and Technology Expo will be held on the 20th and 21st of July at the Washington Convention Center. And this is really the premier, premier science and technology event for our Navy and Marine Corps. Uh, it's co-sponsored by the American Society of Naval Engineers. We hold it about every two years. And it's really the showcase of these technologies. It's the opportunity for uh, government, academia, industry, and, and I'll, I'd invite anybody who's not part of our normal circle of folks to come and, A, check it out, uh, introduce yourself to, to anybody at that conference. Uh, come find me, and I'll be happy to happy to give you some thoughts on on what I'm thinking at any given moment. Uh, and more importantly, we'll have many of our representatives there from the Office of Naval Research and the other parts of the Naval Research Enterprise that uh, that folks can can dialogue with one on one in small groups in panels. Uh, just a whole host of opportunity to extend the network of folks who are working on the nation's hardest problems in support of their Navy and Marine Corps. So that's the showcase. That's the opportunity, 20th and 21st of July at the Washington Convention Center. I hope to see, Jared, you there and anybody who's listening. I hope to see you there as well. All right, Admiral, we will leave it there. Thanks again for talking with us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, great. Thank you, sir. Rear Admiral David Hahn is the Chief of Naval Research. We will post a link to more information about the Concept Challenge and the S&T Expo at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. Another short break, and when we come back, as DOD approaches the deadline to begin its first-ever financial audit, we'll get the take of the financial management workforce about where things stand. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbiu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And we are just three months away from the long-standing deadline for the Defense Department to begin its first-ever full-scope financial audit. The American Society of Military Comptrollers has spent the past nine years surveying DOD's financial managers about their biggest challenges in meeting that goal. Their latest report tries to synthesize all of those responses and take a big-picture look at where things stand. In this part of the program, we're going to listen back to my recent interview with Arianne 
Whittemore. She's the Director of Defense and Security Issues at Grant Thornton, the firm ASMC has been working with over all of those years to come up with annual reports on the major issues facing defense financial managers. And Ariane, let's start by talking about some of the common threads that you've seen in the surveys from from 2007 up until now. Take us through some of those commonalities, if you would. Okay, Jared. So what we did this year was a little different from what we've done in previous years. What we did this year with the American Society of Military Comptrollers uh, Financial Management Survey of Executives uh, was to look back at the trends over the last nine years or so. What we found was the trends were very similar in terms of the most significant concerns of the financial management leadership in the Department of Defense. And there were four common themes or concerns across all of the years. The first one was fiscal constraints and budget uncertainty, um, both with the dwindling resources, constraints of the budget, and the uncertainty due to uh, continued resolutions and uh, late budget passage. The second one surrounded people, and it was about the recruiting, retaining, attracting, and developing the high-quality people the department needs to lead it forward, particularly in the financial management community. Uh, The third one was around audit. In the early years, it was about the department attaining auditability, since all the services and some defense agencies have gone under audit already. It is now about sustaining auditability by attaining it. And then lastly, the last major um, common concern was around information technology. So all of the military departments have bought uh, new information technology systems in their financial management areas, um, but they have not yet retired the old legacy systems. So it's surrounded, were the new systems um, worth buying, and uh, what other issues were there around information technology? And what we found was the principal other concern was that legacy systems were not retired soon enough. So in many cases, the financial management professionals are operating two sets of systems, the old legacy systems and the new principal ERP systems. Uh, let's dig into the people piece a little bit to, to start with. Um, w- w- one element of this, uh, you know, w- one of the big priorities for Bob Hale, the former uh, DOD comptroller, has been to build a, a, a financial management certification program for the FM community, which, as your survey points out, folks felt in the early years like there really wasn't a clearly developed career path. How much has that uh, certification program had an impact on on solving that problem that you identified in the early years? So you are right. Bob Hale um, spent a lot of time and effort and was very successful in building a very high-quality financial management certification program that's required of all Department of Defense individuals, both civilian and military, um, in the financial field um, moving forward. Uh, Our survey found that that is providing value. Uh, we found about 40% of the individuals felt that the, serv- that the um, certification process has already provided value, but it's only really in its third year of implementation. So we think as time goes along, uh, those numbers will improve as people see the value of the certification program. And did folks have any ideas on how, how that program ought to be refined in future years since it is, as you said, so new? So the principal um, common con- common thought around how it could be improved um, is two things. One is have some uh, leadership training in addition to uh, specific financial management training because most of the curriculum now is focused on hardcore financial disciplines, accounting, budgeting, cost management, things like that. So um, the department is looking at adding some leadership uh, courses into that continuum. And then secondly, um, better aligning 
the courses with people's job specific requirements, not simply the level of the job. So right now, um, your job in the Department of Defense, if you're a financial professional, is given a level, level one, two, or three. And the requirements for education through the certification program and the continuing education is tied to that level. Some individuals felt that it should be tied a little more to their specific jobs and not just the level. So if I'm a level three certified individual and I'm an accountant, uh, maybe I take a, a different set of courses if I'm a level, C, level three certified person and I'm a budget analyst, for instance. Gotcha. You also mentioned recruiting and retaining and and. and has the has the significance of that concern kind of gone up or down over the years in response to things like, uh, you know, the other factors like budget turmoil and, and, and the difficulty of, of navigating that that uncertain fiscal environment? So we've got we've got a good news, bad news story there. Um, across the board, the participants felt that recruiting and retention um, has been and will remain a challenge for the department in the financial management field. It is not tied so much to budget uncertainty as a couple of other factors. Um, one is uh, the attractiveness of jobs outside the Department of Defense and outside the federal government, um, and frankly, the pay scale, so that um, the outside jobs in many career fields pay considerably more than the federal government pays. The upside um, is that the department has really fascinating opportunities and that the individuals, particularly the executives, said that the uh, contribution of giving back to our defense, being part of the defense establishment, um, was very self-satisfying to their employees. And they felt that if the department continued to try to attract and retain individuals based on the value of their contribution to society and to the federal government, because national defense is so critical, um, that that was going to attract and retain more people because the mission is so important. Uh, the other things they brought up were things such as some of the more um, forward-thinking um, personnel uh, flexibilities and policies. So, for instance, maybe expanding teleworking and flexible work schedules, much like the private sector does. Um, Delayering of organizations so that um, I can make more of an impact as a financial management professional um, because I'm not going through a lot of layers. My voice gets heard by senior leadership. Um, they talked about joint duty assignments. So if I happen to be a Department of the Army employee, maybe you send me to the Department of the Navy for a little while or a joint command to learn something a little different and then go back to my command and take that knowledge back. Um, but also I've done something different, so it's sort of re-energized re me, rejuvenated me in my, in my career. Um, and the other thing that they spoke about, which was um, very heartening, was government industry exchanges. They felt that if um, the department uh, entered into more government industry exchanges, again, uh, DOD personnel could come into industry for a year or two, learn something different, take that knowledge and go back to the department. Uh, same thing with industry. Industry could send a couple of people into the department, and then they could come back to industry with a better understanding of what each other does. And also, it would make the career uh, more attractive in federal government because you're not just doing the same thing every year after year. And what about the issue of just overall staffing levels, and which which is kind of a more recent phenomenon, I think, because certainly the financial management community has not been exempt from the 20% headquarters reductions that have been happening across DOD for the past couple of years. How big an issue has that been for, for the comptrollers? I will tell you that the respondents to our survey felt it was a big deal. 
Um, those that are at the headquarters who have seen the 20% headquarters reduction in their commands um, feel it is a challenge to continue um, with the current uh, budget workload, particularly um, when you think about the financial instability, um, the frequency by which um, the services need to build budgets, um, in many cases they're building them two or three times to different funding levels. Um, in the case of this year, they built a 2018 budget um, for the Obama administration. They'll build a 2018 uh, budget for the um, Trump administration. So. The workload hasn't gone down, and yet the headquarters staffing levels have. Now, they did say that they felt that once the duplicative information technology systems were eliminated, that would be a help because the new systems are more efficient. Um, but the combination of the lack of declining workload um, and um, the duplicative duplication of systems workload uh, was having impact, particularly on the headquarters activities. And you touched on this toward the beginning of our conversation, but that was one of the interesting findings in the report to me was that only 20% of your respondents thought that the the big modernization projects, the ERPs that have been going in over the last decade, only 20% of folks actually thought that's reduced the workload. Talk a bit more about, about why that would be the case. So um, that would principally be the case, and what we've heard from the respondents was that's because a lot of the workload associated with legacy systems are still there. So either the ERP system has not um, taken the entire workload um, off the legacy system, or the um, component, the agency or service, is um, at this point a little... Um, skeptical about shutting down some of the legacy systems until they are sure that the ERP systems are providing what they need. So their biggest concern about the ERP systems was not the ERP system. They felt those are very capable and in the long term will provide value. It's the um, using both the legacy system and having to populate those as well as the ERP systems um, that were the detractor. And that's actually the subject of one of the recommendations in your report. What are you suggesting that the administration does with respect to IT specifically? Uh, we're suggesting in this report um, that the income administration um, very swiftly and very um, tactically uh, shut down legacy systems everywhere they can. Um, that too much of the department has kept legacy systems that are no longer need needed um, and or duplicative of capabilities in their new ERP systems, which is causing increased workload and frustration for the financial management community. Um, therefore, the department um, coming in, the new administration coming in in the Department of Defense needs to do an end-to-end -end review of the uh, financial management systems and what we call financial management feeder systems, those that feed financial systems, um, and get rid of all those that are no longer providing unique value. We're talking with Arianne Whittemore. She's the Director of Defense and Security Issues at Grant Thornton, the firm that's been working with the American Society of Military Comptrollers for nine years now to survey and identify the biggest issues facing the defense financial management community. We'll come back and talk more after one last break on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbio. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and we're talking with Ariane Whittemore from Grant Thornton, 
She handles defense and security issues there, and she has been deeply involved in the work they've been doing there in partnership with the American Society of Military Comptrollers, their annual survey of the biggest issues for DOD financial managers. Before the break, she told us the new administration needs to do an end-to-end review of DOD's financial IT systems to make sure the billions of dollars the government's invested in new enterprise resource planning systems are brought to fruition and finally turn off the legacy systems those ERPs were meant to replace. I don't know if you can tell this with the with the level of granularity that you got out of the survey, but uh, but are there cases where you know the, the the new ERPs just accidentally weren't designed to incorporate all the functionality that people need from the legacy systems, and therefore that's why some of the legacy systems are still up and running? So I have to say that um, nothing we received in terms of survey feedback, either in the in-person roundtable discussions we had or the online survey, uh, said that. Um, so I can't speak authoritatively as to whether that's part of the problem or not. Fair enough. Um, let, let's pivot to another one of the major concerns that you mentioned earlier, the fiscal constraints and uncertainty piece, including continuing resolutions, late budgets, year after year. I mean, some of this is self-evident. It's hard to manage the finances of an organization when you don't know what those finances are. But but take us a little bit take us a little bit deeper into the concerns that that your respondents had. What are the specific issues that they're facing? So the uh, specific concerns they had were because of the um, uncertain fiscal environment and the um, lack of what they call regular order and appropriation on time before the fiscal year begins, they can do appropriate planning. Um, In many cases, for many years, the services have had to do multiple budgets. So you'll do a fiscal year 2018 budget with three different uh, top lines um, to be able to respond quickly to whatever the um, expected top line will be coming down from the Office of Management and Budget uh, when it does come down. So that adds the workload of this already um, workload-stressed financial community if I'm repeating the same work to three different budget top lines, for instance. Right. And on on audit... um... You found changing attitudes on this over time. Um, the, the the report this year points points out that your your really early surveys found that that most of the FM workforce didn't necessarily think it was even a worthwhile exercise to to get to auditability, and that might might explain why it's taken so many decades. If if even the FM people weren't enthusiastic, how can you expect the rest of the department to be? Talk about how the, those attitudes have have changed over time, and and to what extent. Um, financial managers are starting to see value in this in this entire endeavor. So I think this is a really good news story for the Department of Defense, which is as more and more of the department went under audit, and as I mentioned, all of the services have gone under audit at least once, and many of the defense agencies and other DOD components have gone under audit, or what they call an audit examination, which is sort of a pre-audit. Um, what they're seeing is the... Uh, value of the audit in terms of helping them improve their business processes. So it's not just about getting a clean or unmodified opinion, which is the ultimate goal eventually, but it's about improving your business processes. And so what the services have seen is each time they go under audit, they the auditors will find business process improvements that will improve the way the service does business, could free up money that the service could put to better use. And so they're seeing the value of that repeatable auditability. The other thing was um, in the early years of the audit journey, as I call it, um, many parts of the Department of Defense felt auditability and the audit was 
the financial manager's responsibility and nobody else had to care about it. What we have seen um, over the years as all the services have gone under audit is that all leadership at all levels across different disciplines are understanding their roles in auditability and the value that brings to all leaders, not just financial leaders. So if I can give you an example, um, the leader of logistics operations in a service what he or she has seen is that it can help the audit can help them improve the, their logistics operations, getting materials out to the warfighter faster, understanding what materials they have, where those materials are, um, where munitions are, where other assets are, which improves their warfighting effectiveness. So now that more leaders are seeing the value of the audit um, to their each of their specific business areas, what you're finding is great interest and um, accountability by leaders across the department, across disciplines, not just in fun- financial management. And of course, this is the year when the entire department is supposed to declare audit readiness on its consolidated financial statement. One, one of your one of your earlier comments suggested that the, the, the FM community's focus is starting to f- uh, shift from getting to auditability to sustaining auditability. Does that suggest some degree of optimism that this is actually going to get done and that the department will meet the deadline or get pretty close to it? It does. Um, I know that the you know, discussions that um, I've seen through these roundtable discussions all of the department is com- committed um, to auditability. And when we talk about sustaining auditability, it's about having sustainable, repeatable, good business processes and good financial processes that will enable the department to sustain audible financial statements for the long term. And all of the department is focused on doing that. So in other words, a lot of the work that they're doing right now to to produce or, or or get themselves ready for audit to present to present documentation to auditors is is sort of a kludge in some ways and things that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect to to need to do year after year because it's pretty time consuming. Is that about right? I wouldn't call it a kludge as much as I'd um, c- concur with your statement that's very time consuming. So it becomes. As you improve your processes, your ability to respond to auditors' requests for information um, becomes more efficient um, because now you know what they're looking for, now you have at your fingertips, now you have a process that enables you to respond more quickly, which then reduces your audit workload um, because it reduces the sample size that's required because there's more confidence in your controls in in the different business processes. And so it's more of what some might call a Herculean effort in the early years. And as the more you go under audit, um, the easier it becomes because you are now keeping the right documentation in the right place available for the auditors because now you know what they're looking for. And that sort of ties back to the IT question that we were talking about earlier. Theoretically, once those legacy systems go away, you're left with pretty much nothing but uh, modern systems that are compliant with modern audit practices, right? Correct. And the more that an auditor can rely on your systems environment, um, the the better the, the control environment is in your systems, um, the concept is the smaller the sample size will be, which is the heavy lift for an audit, which is responding to auditor samples. So once you can get the sample size down because the auditor can rely on both the control environment in your business processes and the control environment in your systems, um, then that makes the audit um, easier um, for you to undergo. 
Did you get a sense talking with your survey respondents whether they felt like this is there's enough momentum about behind audit that it's or the whole audit readiness process that it's more or less self-sustaining at this point or that um, progress could be derailed if it's not a priority for the administration? Um, I will tell you that the um, roundtable discussion respondents in particular, so the people we had uh, discussions with, because we conducted a series of four roundtables uh, with defense financial managers, both executives and workforce, as well as we conducted an online survey, um, there was resounding um, commonality in the concern that if auditability is not a focus of the incoming administration, um, it is potentially um, not going to move forward as quickly as it would if the incoming administration makes it a priority. And the respondents very emphatically said they really hope that the incoming administration makes auditability one of their top priorities and that they devote the resources, both fiscal and personnel and time, to sustain the momentum the department has gained over the last several years in auditability. Arianne Whittemore is the Director for Defense and Security Matters at Grant Thornton, the firm that's been working with the American Society of Military Comptrollers for the past nine years on their annual survey of the issues facing DOD financial managers. We'll post a link to their latest findings at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. Earlier in the program, we talked with Rear Admiral David Hahn, the Chief of Naval Research, about the Navy's search for new breakthrough technology ideas, an effort called Concept Challenge. If you missed that conversation, find this week's entire program on our website or on our podcast. That's it for this week's program. Thanks as always for listening to On DoD. I'm Jared Serbia. So long. You've been listening to On DoD with Federal News Radio DoD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DoD, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.